Hi, everybody. It is Nick Bradley. Welcome to today's show. Now, my guest today is the former president of a brand we all know. In fact, if you're anything like me, you may know this brand a little bit too well and you possibly couldn't live without it. That's a bit of an admittance here today, isn't it? Um, I'd go as far as to say that I know this brand so well that when I visit around Christmas time, I get given a card personally personalized to me, a personalized Christmas card from the staff at my local store. Of course, I'm referring to one of the world's favorite coffees, certainly one of the world's most favorite places to have coffee, and that is Starbucks. And my guest today is the legendary Howard Bihar. It wasn't meant to be a brand. It was meant to be human in nature. It was just a reflection of the people that we were serving and saying this is what they wanted. Now, Howard is also the author of the books, It's Not About the Coffee, Leadership Principles from a Life at Starbucks. He also has written a book called The Magic Cup. He is now a speaker, a mentor. He travels the world speaking to corporations, to leaders, to students, teaching them to lead with values first. I got right away that it wasn't about the coffee, you know, but it wasn't about the coffee, it was about the people. And that's, you know, I came there and that's what I drove. So the upcoming interview doesn't need a lot of introduction. To be honest, and I assure you, you're up for an absolute treat. A jolt, a buzz, if you want to kind of think about the coffee analogy there. But Howard shares a whole heap of his wisdom and so many lessons from years of being successful at the top of, for me, one of the most impressive organizations that really thinks about its people and thinks about its culture. So there you have it. Coffee lovers or not, Starbucks lovers or not, please welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Howard Bihar. Hi, everyone. It is Nick here again. Another week, another fantastic interview. I am delighted to have on the show with me today, Howard Bihar. Now, Howard has spent, God, a lot of his career at a place where I spend too much of my money. It's called Starbucks. <laughs> but today we're going to get into not just that and, and what has been a very successful career scaling that amazing organization. Uh, we're going to get a lot into leadership today actually, and values and some of the important things that make a business successful. So, Howard, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate the opportunity. So, are you sick of talking about Starbucks or can we talk about no, Starbucks? No, never, I never get sick of talking about Starbucks. Okay, good. Have you got a, a really bad coffee addiction? I about the coffee, but never the people. <laughs> can I let you in on a story as we kick this off? So, back, back in the 90s, I was working for a big media company in Sydney, Australia. And it was when Starbucks first launched, I think it was its first store, it was in Sydney. Right. And I forget the person who came out, but um, he was talking about this kind of third dimension or this third space. And he said that Starbucks was created not just about the coffee, it was about you have, I'll try and get this right, you have home, you have work, and you have Starbucks. Right. And does that ring a bell with you at all? Or was sure. this of the third place. It came from a book called The Great Good Place, and it talks just about that, that, that we need places other than home and work. Got it. Okay. So were you part of that, the strategic development of that as the brand yes. of Starbucks? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be a brand. It was meant to be human in nature. It was just a reflection of the people that were we were serving and saying this is what they wanted. We weren't that smart. 
<laughs> that sounds pretty smart to me. I mean, like listening mm-hmm. to customers and doing, you know, well, and we listen. yeah, that's what we did. We listened. So let's get into this. So, so to kick this off, you know, f- firstly, how did you, you know, come to know and then come to work at Starbucks? Well, I was about 44 years old. I had been president of a land development company in Seattle, but I, it was consumer land development, but I'd grown up in pretty much all retail. And so uh, the company got in trouble and I was president of it and we had to sell it. And so here I was, actually, I was 42 and I had, a, what was I going to do with my life? I had a couple of kids getting into college. I had to go to work. I wasn't wealthy. So, and I was trying to figure out what to do and I was trying to buy a business. And along that journey of buying a business, I met this young guy named Howard Schultz, who was at that time the, the CEO and president of this little tiny coffee company. I think at the time I met Howard, they had about 10 stores or 12 stores. And so over a year's period of time, I won't go into the whole story, but over a year's period of time, we had this dance. And finally, you know, he got serious about talking to me. I said, before, you know, you extend an invitation for me to join Starbucks, before I accept, if you were going to extend that invitation, can I work in the company for a week for free? I'll just, I want to work in the company for a week for free. I want to work in the stores. I want to work in the plant. And I want to work on the trucks. And so I got to do that. And at the end of that week, I knew it was the right place for me. And fortunately, he extended an invitation. I'd have been disappointed if he wouldn't have. And that's how it happened. It was just, wow. I, turned right, I turned right instead of turning left. Instead of buying a business, I ended up joining Howard. So I've done, I've done 117 acquisitions and 25 exits, right? So that's my background. So I'm, I'm always yeah. in favor of buying a business, but this has obviously been the right move for you because you ended yeah. up spending your career there. What, what was it about that week? that you learned that made you think, you know what, I really want to join this business join, and join working for Howard? It was the people uh, that I met in the jobs that I was doing. I was working on the plant floor. I was packaging coffee for a company called Costco. I think you probably know Costco. Yeah, I do. And, we, and it would do, at that time, we were doing it all by hand. We had these five-pound bags, and I'd pull a lever, and <laughs> I'd take it, pull it over, and put a piece of tape on it. I did that for three days, eight to 10 hours a day by the time those I hadn't worked that physically hard in so long I couldn't remember when I was exhausted so and then and then I went to the stores and met the people there and and the people we were serving those human beings we call customers and and I got right away that it wasn't about the coffee I and I'd been a Starbucks customer for 17 years before I started Starbucks you know but it wasn't about the coffee it was about the people and that's what I you know I came there and that's what I drove that it was about the people, but that's what got me. I just, I connected to the people. And how intentional do you think that was from the outset? Is that something that when you were speaking to Howard beforehand, he'd said, listen, I'm creating this, or was it more the fact that he just had a very simple way of hiring people who fit his values? Well, I think that more than the other. He, you know, like all entrepreneurs, they think their business is about the product or service they're selling, and it is not right? It's always about the people. I don't care what you do. The minute, it, even if it's <laughs> one person, even if it's only one person, it's about you. The most difficult person you'll ever have to lead in life is yourself, right? And um, so it was really, I don't think anybody really looked at it that way. I did. And I coined this phrase about two months into it. I said, we're not in the coffee business serving people. We're in the people business serving coffee. Sounded like a small play in words, but I was trying to get I was trying to get everybody to think differently about our business. Yeah, coffee is important, but the most important thing were the people. Yeah, well, it's not always just the coffee that's going to bring people back, is it? Right? You know, no, it's, it's no, how it's you're the treated. People that bring them back. 
How, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to underplay or, or, or anything like that or overstate the point of culture here, right? Because it gets overused in my opinion, in many ways these days, but, but how intentional was all of this in the beginning? Did, you know, did you come in there and sort of get involved with like, you know, we, we, these, we have these set of values, we're going to hire these values, we're going to reward and promote. Was all that built at this point or was it still more embryonic? No, no, it was embryonic. Nothing was written down and I was part of that journey and and we hired got help to do it jim collins came in and helped us from good oh wow <laughs> good, 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 before he wrote his books and so we got a lot of help setting up bhag and and we, people with inside the company were pushing us to do it and we had uh howard and i and there was another man named Norrin smith we we're the triumvirate so they called us h2o and we had this feeling that we didn't want to do it on the backs of people we wanted to do it with people Everybody got health care right out of the gate, which is really unusual in particularly the United States in, in, you know, in the fast service business. And everybody got equity. We weren't public, but everybody got equity in this private company. And you know, we just decided this is how we wanted to live our lives. It's more uh, family of origin stuff for Howard and I and Oren. None of us came from anything. Howard particularly, he was from a very poor family. Oren the same. I was more lower middle class. My dad had a small mom and pop grocery store, but, but no, we set it up from that and we drove everything towards that. We want to be able to walk down the hallway, look at everybody in the face, say we're in it together. There were no company boats, no airplanes, no company cars, no company, no health club memberships and no accounting fees for executives. (laughs) Did that ever change? Did that ever change? (laughs) Never. Well, yeah, Yeah, out of airplanes. I had to have, I, I didn't like that. I voted against the airplane, but I got outvoted. So, uh, you know, uh, there's always people who have a dream of having a private jet. Um, yeah. And what was your first role? Because I know you went there and, you know, there was only a number, a handful of stores. And then when you yeah. left, there's like, you know, you did a lot of the international expansion. Yeah. But what was the first role you had? I came in as vice president of operations, of okay. sales and operations. So I had everything that touched the customer was mine. So the retail stores, wholesale business, you know. God, the whole piece. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and back then, so those 28 stores or thereabouts, where were they located? Were they mainly in Pacific uh, Northwest? Seattle, uh, Vancouver, British yep. Columbia, a few, and a couple in Chicago. Okay, wow. Don't so ask take- me why. Yeah, going from Seattle to Chicago, Howard had gone to school in Illinois, and so he and his wife was from there. So I think he was just wanted to prove he could do it in Illinois. There's something about going back to a, like a school or college reunion <laughs> yeah. yeah, here I am. Here, here I am. Exactly. The, the whole yeah, space. Yeah. So t- take us through this journey. I mean, th- this this show has traditionally been about scaling businesses. Right? I want to talk about leadership a bit more in a minute, but just take us through that that journey that you had going from, as we said, you know, the 28 stores to thousands globally. You know, what were some of the key things that, that you experienced over that journey? And, and just give us a bit of a sense of the time frame as well. Well, it was I started in 1989, and um, uh, we had um, we were growing at a pretty rapid rate, and our target was to have 2,000 stores by the year 2000. Okay, and we went screaming past that, but uh, but it was a fast track, really fast. You if you couldn't run, you couldn't stay there, or or you you know you'd have to do something that you could do, uh, but it took a lot of energy. It, you know, I, it was, you know, it was 12 hour days. I don't think I slept a night 
Yeah, I was 21 years. I didn't have a, I, 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 you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with something on my mind, something was worrying me or an idea, you know, I'd get up in the morning and look at my notes. I couldn't figure out what I'd written, you know, and, but it was a really fast track and you had to be, yeah, you had to have belief that we could do it. It took us a while to really figure out what we had. You know, it wasn't until we had about 200 stores that we finally figure out we really had something. And uh, you were just in Vancouver. So when I finally realized how big this was going to be, we had we had a store on a corner called Robson and Thurlow. Yep. It's a prime in Vancouver, prime corner. So uh, we had a store that had a demolition clause in the lease. And I said to our real estate person, see if you can get the piece of real estate kitty corner from that across the street. And and she said, well, what are you going to do when if we get that store and we saw the other one? I said, we'll figure it out when we get there, because this was going to be a tough one to get. It was a heritage building. And she got it in six months. Now I had to make a decision. What do we do? Do we close the other store or do we keep and go out of the new one? Cause it was bigger. And we decided to keep both stores open. We doubled the volume on that corner by opening the second store. And one, it was amazing because one set of customers we called the suits and one set of cut and one, the other store was called the bikers. And that's how different the two sets of customers were. And they wouldn't, and they wouldn't cross the road. Cause it was, cause no. there was just such a, uh, and what about the staff? Yeah. I mean, I, I love to, I love to get granular on these sort of things. Yeah, what about they the they, And they didn't cross the road and they were that different. Wow. And we had a third store on that corner, which was amazing. And so what happens, sorry to jump in on this, but I'm really curious. Yeah. Do you then think about the staff, like certainly from the kind of the, the manager of the store, for example, do you think about them in relation to the audience? So obviously the person who's behind the counter serving the suits, let's say, might present differently or may think differently than the ones, the bikers or whatever it was you said. Is, do you think of it like that or is it just like, it doesn't no. matter? No, no. I mean, they were, look, people are people. I don't care whether they drive motorcycles or they're going to work in a bank. They're still human beings and they, we pretty much think the same. We all want to be treated with respect and dignity. We all want to be cared about. We all want it to be personal, you know, like it's real. And that's how we approached it to everybody. We were going to be real. We were going to be authentic. You know, we weren't trying to make it slick. We want, look at really human relationships has texture. So in a coffee shop, it has to be texture. It can't be slick. Got it. So we just it, it, people with respect and dignity, no matter who they were, and that worked. Yeah. See, I'm trying. I'm trying to intellectualize this, right? It's it's so much more simpler. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't no. Yeah. Don't intellectualize it. It's no different than talking to your friend or your significant other, your wife, your kids. You know, it's it's the same thing. So let's talk about that growth that you said beforehand. So you yeah. had a target, and you said it was you beat that target. You smashed it. What, what, what do you think did that? What was the, what were the things that underpinned that growth? I mean, we talked about the people, but what else? Well, you, you talk about, you know, we all, you know, that word culture, we overuse, use it kind of, but it matters. It ma it really matters. And it has to be real. Yeah. Right? Not every organization has a culture. Every family has a culture. The question you ask yourself, is it the culture you want? Right. And does it match who you are as a person? Because you, leaders can't fake it. Leaders have to be authentic. They have to be vulnerable. They have to be real. No BS. Right. If you're a jerk, then tell everybody you're a jerk. You know, if you're a good guy, tell everybody a good guy and how what that what they can expect from you. Right. And that's what we did. And then we set goals. We set big goals. We had big dreams and and we just hired great people and they did it. I'd like to tell you that it was Howard I and Orrin that did it, but we didn't. 
What we did was hold everybody accountable to the values of the organization. We made sure we had enough resources in place to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And, and, and uh, we hired great people. And that's what made it work. It's not, it's not that complicated. No, no. Well, as I said, I like to draw a line under what people say on this show all the time. And there's some sound bites already here. <laughs> Keep yeah. it simple. How, how did you go about um, coming up or defining the values? And, and what are they? It was who we were. It was Oren. Oren was raised in a farming community in Western Washington, single mother, head of household. Father was an alcoholic, left when five kids and the mother and the mother had to support five kids. So Oren, you know, didn't have any money, gets to, goes to the University of Washington, gets a degree, then gets into Harvard and gets a, uh, a, de a degree in finance. So Howard Schultz came from a really poor family in Brooklyn, New York, really poor. He lived in the housing projects, had nothing. And I told you where I'd come from. I came from a, two immigrant parents who didn't have anything either. And uh, so when we came together, we said, this is how we're going to live. This is how we're going to act in the organization with our people. There was nothing we wouldn't do for our people. You know, we didn't have any rules and regulations on what, how we would take care of our people. We did what we thought was right, and we asked them what they wanted. And so that, that drove it. That, because that, that those, you know, the, the first guiding principle is we treat each other with respect and dignity. The last guiding principle is we recognize that profitability is essential to our, our our future success and growth. It was the last thing, not the first thing. Got it. If we did everything else right, then the money would come or it wouldn't, you know, you, you know, you wouldn't make it because the business model was wrong or you did something wrong. But, but fortunately the business model was right and we had great people to execute. How many um, leadership principles did you have in the business? Oh, I don't know. We had about eight. I can't remember all of them now. That's all right. I won't quote you on all of them. We can, <laughs> people, yeah. people get into this because I've, I've had, I, used, I worked at a company called Getty Images for a while and we had seven leadership Get principles. Yeah. Well, yeah, you would because we were based in Seattle um, <laughs> and we deliberately put ourselves next to Microsoft for a number of years. Um, but we had um, seven principles there and it was so embedded into our culture. Like everything was about those principles. Like, you know, and that was us too. And we had our, our BHAG, what we called our BHAG, now it's more of the mission, is we want to be one of the most well known and respected organizations in the world, known for nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. Not a damn thing to do with coffee, not a damn thing to do with sales, nothing to do with profits, known for nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. And, you're right. And that was it. And that drove us. I mean, that, we made lots of mistakes along the way. We didn't always nurture and inspire the human spirit, but we always had that to come back to. And we pushed our people to hold leadership accountable. You know, we wanted to be challenged. And we, there was never any, you know, if you said something to me about, hey, Howard, if they came to me and said, Howard, we don't like how you treated us last week, they were going to get my ear. And I'd say, what can I do to fix that? And that's how we acted. Okay. This is, this is very good. I'm going to keep probing around because I'm curious yeah. about this. When you, when you were going through a process of trying to find the right person, selecting someone to join, what did that yeah. look like? Did you have a, quite a rigorous process of lots of interviews and assessments or was it just how did that work? Yeah, yeah no, we had, we, had, we had lots of interviews and we had some, we did some assessment. But you know what I, I found is I, you know, because of the kind of people that I had responsibility for hiring, for bringing into the organization. I was bringing more senior level people in. 
So I didn't focus on their skill sets. I had people that could focus on whether or not they were good at accounting or they were good at software design, whatever it was. I focused on human skills. I wanted to know who were these people. So, you know, the first question I'd ask out of the gate, tell me your three, three of your core values and how those core values influence the action and the decisions you make in your life. I want to know that. Right now, a lot of people couldn't get there. So I'd have to push further. You know, they never, nobody ever asked them. I'd ask them, tell me what your parents wish you would have become versus what you have become. Oh, nice. Tell me what your, what your, if you have a brother or sister, what do they like about you? What do they dislike about you? Tell me about the most difficult human experience you've ever had. And what was the outcome of that experience? Tell me how, how, how you help somebody achieve what they wanted out of their lives. Tell me what your top five goals are for your life. Those are the questions I wanted mm-hmm. answered. And then I, my, my, my ending question was always this. It was more of a statement. I said, if you have, I have a magic wand in my hand and you're a lucky person today because this magic wand really can do the trick. So I waved it over their head. I did. I had a, actually had a wand. <laughs> I waved it over oh, their head and I said, tomorrow morning, you get to wake up doing anything you want to do with your life. And not only that, you're going to be paid double what you ever thought you were worth. What would you be doing tomorrow morning? You know, oh my. that was amazing what answers. Oh I my. And I take it like, even I can just get a sense of like the, the, the people who really engaged with the questions, you know, not necessarily yeah. giving perfect answers, of course, but no, I the ones who, you were more interested in people who, who lit up, I bet from yeah, just the exactly. ability. Yeah, I get it. If they, if, if they couldn't be honest, then I knew when they were smoking me, right? If they could be authentic and have vulnerability with those questions, I knew they didn't belong. And did you, did you get that same, let's say, induction from Howard Schultz when you met him? Was he asking you those types of questions? We both asked each other. Uh, I, I like I it. <laughs> list of criteria that I wanted and what I, how I was going to buy a company, remember? And right. I had all the things that I wanted to do. One, a bunch of the things matched up with his. One was everybody got to vote, right, in the company. And I, I changed that to the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom with inside of Starbucks. That was one of my quotes that I, I had. So that everybody understood that we hire these great people, let them run with it. If they make a mistake, we'll help them, right? And the second one was, let's see, the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom. Uh, oh, that everybody got equity in the company. I wanted everybody to own a piece of the action. And Howard right on with that, you know? So. And some of this stuff was before it's time. I mean, you hear of companies now trying to oh. replicate that sort of stuff, but, yeah. but you know, there's, there's a lot of things like that that just weren't even thought of certainly back then. They were. they were Max Dupree, right. You know who he is. I know the, I don't know the background of it, but yes. Yeah, it was in the office furniture business. And I forget the title of his book, but uh, anyway, it, he talked about it. Uh, Spencer Johnson and Ken Blanchard were yeah, all yeah. talking. One minute manager that was all there. Uh, Jim Collins, uh, Love and Profit. There were tons of stuff out. Leo Biscaya uh, uh, wrote a book. Uh, uh, um, oh God, I can't. You know, I can't remember titles anymore. But a great book about people. And uh, one of my favorite quotes that he said. He said, he said what who he wanted to be, and I took it on ferociously. He wanted to be a master bridge builder and he would gently, uh, he gently t- help his people across the bridge and then gently break the bridge behind them. 
in essence, <laughs> grow the grow the people and the, and then help them do what they wanted to do. They didn't need him anymore. You know, I was hoping this conversation would make me think that I didn't like Starbucks anymore. I was thinking, like, you know, Sorry. Uh, Sorry. You, you're you're hurting this. You you are yeah. right, yeah. Um, and I do. I do spend a lot of money. Um, so. Just thinking through this a little bit more, I want to kind of go back to yeah. you know the expansion if we can. I, I find yeah. this stuff fascinating. What what were some of the big decisions that you had to take? I mean, you said two thousand stores by the year two thousand, but you smashed that. Just, yeah. just just give us a sense of that roller coaster over that period of time. Well, you know, real estate was mm. critically important. We don't own uh, we owned a few pieces of real estate, but but everything we were doing was leasing. So figuring out what kind of real estate we needed. And fortunately, we had a model that could you could run it in 600 feet or 2,500 feet, right? Okay. So, you know- it, So it, this is the, just to be clear, this is the operational delivery of a store. So it wasn't- Yeah, right. So, okay. Yeah, the operational delivery of a store. You just would have more seating in a 2,500 square footer than you'd have in six. But so we could take, we were looking for prime real estate, which in some instances hurt us. You know, London- we went after prime real estate. It was a mistake because it was too expensive, right? And uh, and we had to adjust that model. But but pretty much everywhere else it worked. And so we were looking for great real estate, and we would go after it. And we were really planned that, and we spent lots of time in that. I probably saw the first three hundred stores personally. Wow! Before we started. really. Yeah. How, how did you make that? I've always been fascinated about this and I don't, I don't want to bring the the, the yeah. McDonald's thing into this too much, right? But I'm yeah. always curious about how a store, and you've already explained this once, how a store can be maximized by having three locations within such close proximity and, and how you get the uh, economic, econometrics, <laughs> right? If yeah. that's the way. How, how do you work that out? Well, you test, you try it. Okay. And when we opened that second store and I saw that, I said, uh-oh, we're underserving the market. That's the first thing that went to my mind. We are really underserving the market. So I said, let's try a few more of those. You know, close real close by. So we tried a few more and then we tried a few more. And all of a sudden we were putting stores really close together, particularly in uh, urban environments like Vancouver, Robson, Thurlow, you know, yeah. but that's, I mean, there's tons of condos, there's tons of people downtown. So in the suburbs, of course, we couldn't do that. We didn't put them as close together, but they're amazingly close together. So it just worked. We weren't brilliant. It's not like we had some grand strategy. We just followed the evidence. You know, here was the information we were getting. Here's what was working. Here's what what worked. We made mistakes. You know, but I think in, in my first 15 years at Star, well, maybe not 15. My first 10 years at Starbucks, we never closed a store. Right. I, I still find this is. I mean, for you being in it, right? You're probably thinking, "Oh, this is easy, right? You know, whatever." We just tried it. I get that, <laughs> and I respect that. It wasn't but easy. I'm, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at it like, okay, it still takes time, effort, money, you know, risk, obviously, to set up a store opposite another store no. or have food. But, 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 you know, you must have modeled this out a bit and then just been brave enough to try it. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, yes, we did. We had, you know, we had, if you want to call it models, right? We kind of knew where stores should be on the driving to work side. You know, it had to be on the traffic side uh, or they had to be in high traffic areas. Yep. You know, we knew that, uh, uh, but we weren't so smart. We went into Australia and failed miserably. Well, you know? I want to talk about yeah. that. Can we talk about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, this, is, this is what I understood. Australia, Australia is a franchise market. Yeah. 
And right. also, I, there's a there's a, there's a snobbery around coffee that exists. I don't yeah. know if it still is. Yeah, the, the flat white. You know that yeah. was. Yeah, and and and, and I, I don't drink that. But biggest, <laughs> biggest coffee producer. I mean, the biggest coffee seller. I I, I think we we would have been better off, but we didn't have a franchise history. We didn't franchise. We owned all our own stores, so we went in with with company owned stores, and I think that was a mistake because labor costs are incredibly high, and you need you need owner workers to make it work, you know, somewhat. And yeah. so, and, and then we put, we spread out too fast instead of opening in Sydney and just staying in Sydney. And then when, there was a great, a good competitor there that kicked our butt and, you know, so, but they're back at it again and they're doing it slowly, but surely and doing it, you know? So, you know, you, sometimes you fail. That was the only country that we failed in. Yeah. Well, as I said, I experienced a little bit of that, but what I was well, told back then actually, a little bit. All right. In Israel, we failed in Israel. Okay. <laughs> I don't know much about that. I can, I can talk about it. There was this, there was this view that, um, as I said, not, not just the coffee snobbery, but also the fact there were a lot of, um, you've got a lot of Italian and Greek people who migrated yeah. to Australia yeah. and they had their little coffee shops, right? And there's yeah. lots of independence, right? So, and people love that. Um, and there was a little bit of a pushback. I think a bit. when I was there, there was a pushback against a lot of the bigger US type of brands coming in. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. except uh, what, what was the Burger King? I forget the name of it. Oh, Hungry, Hungry Jacks. Jacks. Hungry yeah. Jacks was the thing where there was a big pushback on that. And yeah, oh, yeah. what was his name? Jack Gowan or Jack? Yeah, I can't what? remember exactly, but I know that he, you know, he won a well. Even where I grew up in he South Australia, yeah, there was uh, yeah, exactly right. So, so take me through. I mean, if we if we think just now about like the the whole experience, and we can draw a line under it to some extent. What do you think you personally? Um, learned and contributed to that growth so you know from you back and i want to kind of get an understanding of your personal values as we go kind of through this yeah so uh well i'll give you a hint so i plagiarized my mission statement goes like this every day i want to nurture and inspire the human spirit beginning with myself first and then for others that's how i live my life wow okay okay and uh, so and then i have what i call my six p's so the first P is everything I do in life has to have a purpose greater than myself, it has to be bigger than me, it has to be serving other people. The second P is if I have a purpose greater than myself, then I darn well better be passionate about it. Scream it from the highest mountaintops. Let everybody know, because you better be getting up in the morning excited to do it. Not that every day is great. You know, I'm not that, you know, I don't believe that. But, but and then the third P is persistence. Nothing in life happens without persistence. And in the rivers of life, there are, there are rocks. Some rivers, some rocks are below the water. You don't see them and you smack them without even seeing them. And you know, you got it. And then some rocks sit above and some reason that we're like drawn to them like a magnet. We smack them anyway, even though we see them. And then some rocks we put there ourselves, right? And so you got to get over them or under them, around them or through them one way or another. And then the fourth P is patience. Not everything comes in the time frame that you think it should come in. People don't come along as fast as you think they should come and, and results don't always come. So you got to have patience to get through it. Most people give up before they get to the finish line. Right? So then the fifth P is performance. Performance matters in this world. Performance matters in business. Performance matters in personal life. If you commit to be at a soccer game for one of your kids, you better be there. If you commit to be in a monogamous relationship with your significant other wife, then you better do that. Right? because we know what happens when you don't. And so in the business world, if you, if you say, I'm going to get this done, then you better get it done or let somebody know early why you're not going to get it done. 
And so performance matters in this world. And then the sixth P, the most important P, is there's nothing in this life that we don't do that doesn't serve people. I don't care whether you're a rocket scientist. I don't care whether you're a barista. I don't care if you're you know, a podcaster. I don't care if you're uh, a fire chief, if you're a police person. It doesn't make any difference what you do. There's only one reason any of us are put on, the, on this earth, and that's to serve other human beings, period. So wow. Where'd you so learn that? We drove in the company. That's what we drove in the company. And that had to be it. And I, you know, I probably gave about 10,000 speeches talking about this. And that's what we told them. You couldn't get fired at Starbucks for missing your numbers. I mean, maybe eventually. But, but if you screwed with the people, it was a quick way out the door. We would try to help you. But if you couldn't figure it out, you didn't belong at Starbucks. Where did you learn that? Where did you learn? I mean, of a life, obviously, we're talking about a whole career and a life of service, right? But, but yeah, those six things, where do they come from? A lot of it was family of origin stuff that yeah. I didn't even recognize I was learning. it. But then there was a guy that probably my most important mentor in life, a guy named Jim Jensen. Amazingly enough, I have a condo in downtown Seattle. He has one in the same building. He's only a few years older than I am, but I was struggling to find a job. I, my wife was pregnant. I'd just gotten fired from a job that I had. And he, he, I interviewed with him and it was in the furniture business and, and I was making about $30,000 a year at the time. This was in the mid seventies. It wasn't bad money. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. And he said, I'll hire you, but I can't pay a 30,000. I can pay you $18,000 a year, but I'll tell you what I'll do for you. I'll give you an opportunity to earn that back through a bonus system. And he set it up. So I had this bonus system. So, and I always believed in myself for some reason. I did, you know, I believed that I could accomplish things. And I'd grown up in retail, so I understood how to operate retail furniture stores. And so the first year I went from, he promised me 18,000, I made 75,000. The second year, now this was in the 70s, the second year I made 125,000. The third year, the CEO of the company and chairman said, you know, we can't pay that much money. You're making as much money as I am. And I said, well, wait a minute, you made a deal. You know, I'm doing what you wanted me to do, aren't I? He said, yeah, but we can't keep that up. I said, okay, what do you want? So they reduced, cut it in half. The third year I made 150,000 cut in half, all on performance. So Jim was a performance kind of guy. So, you know, he stood with me. The second, <laughs> he, he had, a, he had a, a incredibly dark side, but he had an incredibly bright side. And his bright side was that he introduced his whole team to, to meditation. You know, uh, he introduced his whole team to affirmations. Yeah, yeah. To oh, learning man. affirmations that whatever you, whatever you believe you can or can't do, you're right. You know. And yep. so here was a group of kids, and we were kids in our mid twenties, and he changed my life. He changed my life, and that began the journey. He was the one that introduced me to servant leadership. I had I had the inclinations just because of, like I said, family of origin stuff, you know, I was a happy, smiley guy all my life, you know, I love people. And so, but he introduced me to servant leadership. So all of a sudden I had the words to match my behaviors. And I said, I really like this. So I started, I became a student of servant leadership. The person who created the, the term was a man named Robert Greenlee. Yeah. And he created the term servant leadership. And I just became a student of it. And I just have been studying it ever since. That's over 50 years. I've been learning about servant leadership. I'm still learning about it. 
So that drove me. And that that's what we did. And oh, that's man, this is so good. You know, I told you this conversation would go anywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I now want to just, just probe a little bit on, on something you said a while. You've said it three times, actually, in our conversation. You've talked about personal leadership, right, quite yeah. a lot. And we just started yeah. to touch on that. Just explain what that is for you. And then I want to kind of get into some of the things that you actually do around that. But what do you mean by personal leadership? Well, look, most of us live our lives without thinking about who we are. Yeah. Right. We just live in our lives and 50 years go by and all of a sudden we say, oh, well, what did I do? Well, I don't know. I did something, but I don't have any. I don't know what, what I did and I don't know why I did it. So the, Jim, this guy. He is the one that he gave me a book and he said, I want you to read this book. And he said, first chapter of the book, talk about identifying your core values. What was the book? Yeah. Do you remember? Uh-huh. Old. I can't even remember that. Over <laughs> years ago. Everyone I'm, loves a book on this show. How everyone's like, well, oh my God. There's, there's, well, I think a good book for that is uh, 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 Steve, Stephen. Uh, oh, what's the name of that book? They had ha- seven habits. Of oh, Stephen Covey. Heaven, uh, seven Stephen habits Covey. of highly successful people yeah, or something. That's, yeah. a great, that's a great book for that. Anyway, yeah. identify your core values, eight to 10 core values. So he gave me a list of 300 words and that were human value. He said, I want you to get it down to eight to 10 core ones. He says, I know there's 50 others that you probably would identify with, but give me eight to 10 really matter to you. So I did that. Then he said, take those eight to 20 core values and identify what those values mean to you. Because if I said, honesty is my first core value. Well, if I asked you, are you honest? You'd say, yes, I'm honest. But if we got into a deeper conversation, you might have a little different definition of honesty, right? What would you do? What wouldn't you do? If there are 100 people in a room, they'd all say they're honest. But when we really got down to it, it might have a little different definition. What kind of white lie would you tell your wife? You know, or what kind of lie would you tell your wife? Right. Yeah. What wouldn't you lie about? So so you had to do that with your core values. And then you had to develop a personal mission statement. I never heard of the term per- mission statement. Are you kidding me? In those times, companies didn't have mission statements. Their mission statement was make a lot of money. You know, that was for everybody pretty much. So I had to develop a mission statement. Well, that time I was in the furniture business. So I wanted to be one of one of the best leaders in the home furnishings industry. You know, that was my mission, you know. And and then my six Ps, which I told you about. It said, write a paragraph or some some sentences that identify how you want to live your life. And so that drove me. That and that's how I developed. This myself. is this is this is what we'd call like, you know, it's kind of got a catchy phrase called personal development now. Yeah. But you were working yeah. on yourself, I, you were working on your mindset you know, and your identity. Yeah, I was working myself. Now, if you you don't write it down, then it's just wishes, hopes, and dreams. I wish I had my piece of paper. I've carried this piece of this document. I call it a picture of Howard and 50 words or less. And it has all those things on it. I've carried it with me for 52 years. And I've changed some things, you know, as time went on. Seriously. So you've got a bit of like sorry, you've got a bit of paper that that you wrote X number of years ago, which has got this on it. And you carry that around in your wallet or something. Yeah, I have it on my iPad and I have it on, you know, and it has my wow, core So this values. is like your, like almost like an identity statement. This is who yeah, I am. That's who I am. That's how I want to live my life. I look at it every day. Then, and then, and then he said, you need to have a plan. You know, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. So I brought it home to my wife and I said, honey, we need to have a plan for our life. She's a social worker. She, her idea, she's, she's lives her life in the moment because she works with people and deals with people that are dying of cancer. You know, they're Mm -hmm. thinking about today and tomorrow. Am I going to live? You know, me, I wanted to think about one, three and five years out. So, but I convinced her and we started our family planning document. I don't mean having kids. We already had our kids, 
but I mean the family planning document that how are we going to live our lives? What did each of us want to accomplish in our lives? And we had them across eight to 10 headings, spirituality, material, uh, uh, travel, children, our marriage, our family, <laughs> extended family, uh, what kind of house we wanted to live in. Yeah, how, what, how, how did we want to live our lives? And so we would go away in our separate areas and we write goals underneath of those headings, right? And then we'd come back and present to each other. And a lot of the, most of the stuff was about us as a family, but there were also, one of the headings was career. Each of us had our own careers. Now we call it life's work. Okay. In a career. People should change career to life's work. Yeah, I agree with that. That, that when you talk about mission and things like that, it yeah, needs to be so, more than just work. Yeah. So we created these five-year plans. Matter of fact, you know, like I said, I'm 77, she's 75. We just did a, re a review of our five-year plan. Now at 77, having a five-year plan is getting pretty optimistic, you know. <laughs> but, but I want to know where you know where you're going. Any path will get you there. And I like to know where I'm going. So that's how I've lived my life. That's how I ran the businesses. That's, you know, how I live my life. And I, you know, that's just what I believe. It makes can a I difference share, I without it. Can I share I something with you? Going. So, you know, I, so yeah. I, I, I write, right. I have my journal, right? And I write yeah. in this. And you know what's, what happens sometimes is I write something in there a number of years ago and I'll write it as a goal or intention and I'll forget about it, right? Like, you know, I look at stuff, but I, and then I go back to this, right? And I look at it and I open it up and I go, holy shit. That I thing did that. that I, does that happen to you too? All the time. There you I go. Put the, put the, it's, it's just because you start to think about it and then you turn those goals into affirmations. Yeah. I mean, I, I, let's just go into, as we finish this up, right? I just want to talk about yeah. some of the personal things that you do. So yeah. you mentioned before meditation, you know, and, yeah. and affirmations. Do you still have a practice around that? Or, or is it something that you still think is important or is it something that you did for I a period did, of time? It's important. I, I kind of passed on it. I just moved past meditation. Not that I don't think it's important. But, you know, I did it for a long time, transcendental meditation. Yep. You know, my wife did too. And I kind of let go of it. I, I, I just didn't find that I had a need for it. Yeah, you know? I still I still do transcendental meditation once a day. And I find that, it, well, I do, it, I do it because I find I've got lots of different business things going on and I find it just grounds me a bit. But I, yeah. I, I know what you mean, because even just stopping, because I don't know if, you know, I sense there's probably some similarities between how we yeah. operate. I tend to be go, 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 go. Yeah. And just to give myself that space to stop is important. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't anymore because I don't have go, 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 go. I, would go <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm re I, I do different things. I'm retired now. So, uh, and then, um, so, uh, let's well, see. Affirmations was the second one. Do you, oh, do yeah, still I still do affirmations. I, I have never given up on affirmations. How do you so, do it out of curiosity? How, how, is uh, um, um, think like a person of action, act like a person of thought. Another uh, affirmation that's really important to me is I am enough, I have enough, I do enough. And then I have some affirmations around my goals. You know, I look and feel great at 165 pounds. Uh, nice. you know, I, lo I love myself unconditionally. Wow. You know? And do you, do you get up and say these? I mean, I'm just really curious yeah, about the detail. Do. Do, you, do you say them in the mornings when you get up or something? Yeah, I do them in the morning. I do them all day because I've got them written down. Oh, you know? man, this is so cool. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I write them down. Absolutely. And the reason, I picture. 
So, so the reason yeah. the reason I'm the reason I'm interested about this, right, is not just a personal thing. It's that people ask me all the time. So I work with business founders who are trying to, you know, create something quite remarkable with their businesses, yeah. right? And they yeah. always ask me about this sort of stuff. Oh, affirmations or incantations or whatever, they don't work. Yeah, and I'm like, do. well, here we go, right? You know, you're one of the, you know, you've run one of the most successful companies ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna send people to this episode, Howard. Now you realize that. Well, look at they have affirmations. They are doing affirmation. Look, you sitting right on your shoulders. You probably don't realize that, but there are six people sitting on your shoulders. They represent your personal board of directors. They're talking to you all the time. Matter of fact, one of them is talking to you right now as I'm talking. Right, the voice is there. That's the same with me. They sit on my shoulder. They're trying to guide me. Now, you got to be careful which ones you listen to because they're giving you affirmations, like it or not. Right? Mm-hmm. Can't do this, or I'm not good enough to do that, or aren't I fantastic, you know, or whatever it is, they're talking to you. And you have to learn to manage those people because they're talking to you and they are giving you affirmations. So you're giving you, anybody that thinks they're not doing affirmations, it's just not true. They are. If they think about it, they are. Yeah. What are the things they say to themselves? Right. What when they go home at night? What do they say to their spouses about their day? Those are affirmations. Yeah, I had this conversation with my nine-year-old the other day when she was saying something quite negative about us, about her ability. Like, oh, I'm yeah. not good enough, or something like that. And I said, listen, you got to be careful what you say to yourself, right? Yeah. Because, like, yeah. you know, you start to believe that. And she's like, what do you mean, Dad? And I said, yeah. trust me, this stuff is real. Right. So, you know, you're better off. So you're better off saying that, you know, you know, you, you are great at this or you are getting better at this, whatever it is. Right. And yeah. she kind of got yeah, it. She I, said, you know I what? That makes be- sense. Dad. Better at this every day. Yeah. Get better at math every day. Right. <laughs> yes. That might work. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, how this is cool, man. So you see, we, I, 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 I thought, you know, we might talk about Starbucks the whole time. No. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> I about Starbucks. You know, I mean, this is how, I, I want to see Starbucks. Is it a perfect place? No, it's not. But for the most part, it, I have tremendous pride in it. And, uh, you know, pride in how we, how we did business and how we treated people. Yeah. And I think that's an important message for people listening to this, you know, when they do, because I think sometimes that gets missed and you see a lot of businesses, startups these days, they get so focused on raising money, trying to create unicorns and all this sort of thing. And there's a little bit of lip service that goes into some of the stuff that we've spoken about today, but actually, as you've said, it's the foundation of to build everything from. The tech tech companies are, are really bad at this, not across the board. That's a a big generalization, but I can, you want me to go down the list? Microsoft, (laughs) my backyard, they were the worst at this. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were abusive to their people. And it cost them 10 or 15, and they made a bunch of bad decisions. Steve Ballmer made a ton of bad decisions on buying companies, billion dollars decisions. Then he he yelled and screamed at people, you know, and 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 Gates called them stupid when they brought an idea, you know. So they lost 10 to 15 years of performance because of it. And they put the guy in that's there now, and I can never remember his name, an East Indian guy who's a wonderful guy, a people guy. He was there. And he changes the whole culture to, to we're about people. Now everybody wants to go there. The guy that started Uber, right? And they finally forced him out. The board forced him out because he treated people disrespectfully. We work. Another one, right? I mean, you want to go down the list? Volkswagen, Wells Fargo, uh, Tyco. Uh, I can, you can go down the list, you know? 
of companies that don't care about people. All they care about is profits. Yeah, there's a big there's a big issue with this, and I and I as I said, I, my background's private equity, right? So I worked yeah. in big PE firms doing scale ups yeah. to exit, yeah. and I saw this all the time. And partly, partly the people who would come in to lead companies who yeah. came in with a bias towards people and culture yeah. were pushed aside a bit because it came it came across as being too uh, soft. yeah too soft or weak. But actually, yeah. what you're seeing now is longer term sustainable value creation is coming from people who are actually very much in that place. Yeah. But it, look, at servant leadership isn't this soft, gentle, kind stuff. It is nice, and it's about caring about people. But it's about performance. You got. I like your six. I like your six piece, Howard. I'm going to try and yeah, get those into the notes. <laughs> you got to perform, but you don't need to do it on the backs of people. No, you I can agree. do it with your people, and it doesn't mean that you. It's not about. I mean, there's a guy in Seattle that's running this tech company that's in the. I think in the Bill Peng deal that he and his brother started this company. And he and his brother got at odds because he wanted to pay his people a lot of money. I think his average person makes over 75000 a year. Nobody gets paid less than 75000 even the administrative assistants. And he, he doesn't take it all for himself. Now, he's in a unique business, maybe, in a unique model. And I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that, you know, there's lots of ways to have build a successful organization or business. No, I agree. This has been awesome. What's next for you, Howard? What 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 are you? I mean, you said you're 77 years of age. What's what lights you up these days, or what do you like to get involved in? I I what lights me up. I want to keep doing this. I want people to change how they lead organizations. I because it, you look at if you I don't care what you call it. I call it servant leadership. You can call it yeah. transformation. You can just call it caring leadership. Call it whatever you want to call it. I want people leaders to think differently about how they lead. Don't be so damn selfish. Don't don't think that you gotta you gotta abuse somebody to get and perform, right? You don't. You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, catch people doing the right things right, as Spencer Johnson said. Don't catch them doing the wrong things wrong all the time. People perform when they feel like they're getting something done. And when you hire great people, give them a chance to do something. Let the person who sweeps the floor choose the broom. <laughs> I love that quote. I read that before we started our conversation. Yeah, I love it. And where can where can people find you, Howard, if they want to? You've got a couple of books okay, as well. Here's, here's, my, here's my telephone number, 206-972-7776. That's 206-972-7776. And my email is hb at howardbihar.com. I, I will respond to everybody that contacts me. I may be a little slow, but I promise you if somebody calls me or sends me an email, I'll get back to them. That is a first. That is the first time when someone's given their phone out, but that that kind of cements, I think, or grounds everything you've just spoken about for the last 60 minutes. Well, good. <laughs> Listen, Howard, it has been awesome, mate. As I said, um, my, I, I knew we'd have a good conversation because I love Starbucks, but I didn't quite realize the richness of the conversation we go into. So just want to thank you for your time. I'm grateful that you've come on the thank show you. and it's great to be able to get your message out there and be able to help other people. All right, buddy. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.